Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Coming to you once again from Hot Springs Village, Arkansas, high atop the Highway 7 Ridge Line from TSPN. That's the Survival Podcast Network Headquarters, a.k.a. The Ant Hill. Today is Wednesday, January the 25th. This is episode 827, and uh, January's a good time to start thinking about all that gardening stuff. I know some of you got snow on the ground and all, but man, I'm starting seeds. I'm getting excited. The spring's coming. It's going to be my first full year at the homestead, so you know I'm going to be bringing a lot of stuff about gardening and permaculture to you, and today I have a great guy to talk to about that hanging on the line here. Uh, I'll be bringing him on in just a second. But not only is he a great guy to talk to about it, he has an amazing website with an amazing database. Just about every plant you could possibly want to uh, know about uh, with information from people on how, how well it performs and all. And it's called allthingsplants.com. And he is, of course, Dave Whittinger. Uh, and he's going to be with us in just a moment. Before I bring him on, though, let's go ahead and take care of our sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you by helping to make sure the show's here for you Monday through Friday for about an hour a day. Uh, first up today, sponsor of the day number one, Sawtooth Tactical, veteran-owned, veteran-operated, and you get the kind of service you would expect when you deal with a U.S. military veteran, and they call them Sawtooth Tactical because they're up in the Sawtooth Wilderness of Idaho. And you'll find everything you need at Sawtooth Tactical to live that tactical lifestyle. Everything from SOE Tactical Gear, Magpul Magazines, and everything else you can think of in between, check out Sawtooth Tactical today. Next up today, ready-made resources. What more can we ask for from a company than for them to say, our name is who we are and what we do. We do what we say, and we say what we do, and we keep doing it every day. Sound crazy? No, that's what ready-made resources is. All the resources you need, ready-made and ready to go, point-click, buy, ship straight to your house. And I mean all of the resources you need ready-made, ready to go. Anything from the gardening stuff to 12-volt stuff for your solar and wind, solar panels, tactical stuff, long-term storage food. If you can think of it, firearms, firearms accessories, they have it at ready-made resources. Check them out today at readymaderesources.com. And remember, the best way to make sure that you're always dealing with a true survival podcast sponsor, go to thesurvivalpodcast.com first and click on their banners in the right-hand margin. You'll know you're dealing with an actual sponsor with a personal endorsement by me versus some cheap imitator. Next up, remember, you can connect with me on Facebook, YouTube, and Twitter. I will have a YouTube video coming out later today explaining downward class migration. It's going to be kind of an academic one and a long one, but I think it's going to be one that you can share with your friends that will really drive home what's gone wrong economically in the United States and what you can do, at least what you can do to start being more prepared for for it. All right, next up, uh, I want to remind you guys you can support the show by joining the Member Support Brigade. If you do that, you support the show at about 20 cents an episode. You get over $150 worth of free ebooks the day you sign up. You get discounts to over 32 vendors. You get some exclusive content available only to members. Just go to the survivalpodcast.com and click on Members or the Member Support Brigade banner. Either one will get you there. And uh, if you're military, law enforcement, Peace Corps, active duty, or prior service, I have a special National Service Discount to thank you for your service. Simply email me at jack at the survival podcast .com before you join. Give me a little details about your service 
and I will send you a special discount code. With that, I've got the housekeeping wrapped up, and I'd like to introduce our special guest today. Again, his name is Dave Winninger, and Dave is the founder of many websites, most notably davesgarden.com and All Things Plants. Pretty much every gardener in the world uses his websites for researching gardening information. He's widely recognized as a leading figure in the online world of gardening. He's current president of his local Master Gardener Association and lives a mostly self-reliant life with his family on 90 acres in East Texas. He's here today to talk to us about the history of his, of his old site, Dave's Garden, and how he's not associated with that anymore. His new site, which is awesome, all things plants. He's gonna, we're also going to talk about gardening, farming, self-sufficiency, how to get online gardening information, some advanced gardening topics. We're talking about permaculture, his results with Google Culture, raising livestock, and just all kinds of cool stuff. Hey, Dave, welcome to the Survival Podcast. Thanks. It's good to be here. I'm a big fan of your show, so I'm, I'm delighted to be on. Thank you. Well, I'm glad to have you on. I heard you on uh, Jason Akers' podcast, and I thought we need to get this guy on. I don't remember if we reached out to you or you us first, but anyway, I'm glad you're here. Um, can we talk a little bit about your first website, well, not really your first website, your first website in gardening, because you were telling me earlier you did some stuff with Linux, but your first garden website is called Dave's Garden. What was kind of the driver to get that site launched, and, and what's the status of that site today? Well, you mentioned you mentioned Linux, and I had I had made a Linux um, news website, and I sold that, and as part of the agreement in selling that, I had agreed that I wouldn't compete against them, and so I was kind of just... Uh, really just kind of floating around for a few months just trying to figure out what I'm going to do. And during that time, I started really kind of focusing on my gardening. And I started uh, trading seeds through uh, uh, you know, mail with other people around the world. And I uh, just had a great time trading seeds. And before I knew it, I had hundreds of different varieties of seeds. And uh, I, I started to realize that I was having trouble organizing uh, what I had. And so I wrote some software that, you know, it's web-based software that would let me track all my seeds. And uh, other people could view my list, and they could send me requests to trade with me. And it was a really neat system, and then I made a tracking system. And, you know, that system became davesgarden.com. Uh, a lot of people don't know that that's the origins of that site. Uh, other people wanted to keep their own uh, systems for, uh, you know, for trading seeds. And so I said that's what other people could create an account and do that. So that's that's what started the whole site there. And as people asked for more features, I put them in. And it didn't take long for it to become, you know, one of the largest gardening sites out there, maybe the largest gardening site. So uh, in 2006 um, or early 2007, I sold Dave's Garden to a company in, in Boston and uh, continued to work with the site for many years after that. And uh, they were a great company to work with. Um, Unfortunately, they sold it to somebody else a couple of years ago, and uh, the company that they sold it to uh, opted not to bring me along. So I went my own way and started allthingsplants.com. And uh, you know, why did I start All Things Plants? Well, what else am I going to do? I, uh, you know, I didn't have a non-compete agreement, so I was free to go ahead and do that. And I just, I can't imagine doing anything other than. Uh, you know, gardening, and I'm a programmer, so it just makes perfect sense that I would continue to serve the Internet with the gardening site. So it's kind of like I took 10 years of experience running Dave's Garden, and I took all that thing, and all the things that I thought that I wanted to do better and, and you know, improve on, I'm doing now again. So it's, it's kind of like a reboot of the whole garden community online type of thing. Yeah, I wanted to ask you, do you think that maybe you're able to do things with all things plants that you maybe wouldn't have ever been able to do with Dave's Garden because... 
with my background in technology and programming and web development, I know that a lot of times you de you develop a system and you don't think about certain things and you end up with underlying code and that underlying code creates either limitations or major hurdles to go to kind of a different level or to change things. So with a clean slate, you probably had a lot more perspective from the beginning with the base code. No doubt. No doubt about it. You're exactly right. Uh, there, there's, there's this whole architecture of Dave's Garden, and um, you know we have the uh, we have the database of plants at Dave's Garden called Plant Files, and uh, good database, lots of pictures, lots of information, um, you know. But the way it was architected from the beginning really kind of limited me on you know where I could go with that. And so at All Things Plants, we made this new database system that's completely written from the ground up. Of course, the whole site is written from the ground up, um, but especially this database. Um, all of the things that I ever wanted to do, I was able to kind of plan those things at the beginning and then write the code based on all of these things. And so really, um, just the, the, the fundamental architecture for that database is just is unbelievable. And, and it's so exciting to actually be kind of starting over again. <laughs> now talk to us about the database, because you said that that's probably what our listeners will have the greatest use for on all things plants. What does that allow them to do? Well, it's kind of, it's a little bit technical, but I'll just tell it to you in terms of the features here. It's, imagine a database of plants where it's um, sort of like a wiki uh, hybrid approach where anybody can come in, they can add anything that they want to the database um, in terms of, we're talking about plants here. Um, and anything that's already there, they can change it. Now, it doesn't mean that they can come in and deface a, you know, a page like you could with Wikipedia and then somebody has to come behind you and fix it. We have a whole team of moderators that review every single proposal that people submit. So if you're looking at a plant and you say, you know what, that's wrong. This plant is not hardy in zone four like you're saying it is. Well, you can create an account and then you can directly on the web page change that uh, to be hardy to whatever you think it is. That goes to a team of moderators and then all they have to do is click on approve or decline for your proposal. And every day we get hundreds of proposals uh, that come in from just you know, regular people that you know care. Like some people really care about peach trees. And, you know, so, you know, they're going to go through and they're going to enter in all of the information about those peach trees, uh, you know, as their own reference guide that they want to refer to later on. Uh, and then other people can come back and review what they've done and propose changes. So it's a really neat thing. The other part about it is every single component of the database is um, is discussable. In other words, if, if I'm looking at a picture that Jack posted of his um, of a certain variety of peach, uh, I can actually post a comment about that picture, and then that comment becomes a whole new thread, just as if your picture was actually a forum all by itself. Uh, and the same thing is like, if you posted a comment about that peach, uh, I can post a reply to your comment. And so, and and, and the plant itself can have comments, uh, you know, like threads posted about. So every single part of this, every every piece of information you see can be discussed. And so that's that's really kind of the core of the site is it's about community and giving gardeners the ability to talk to each other about what interests them. It's also like collective intelligence on steroids because no each component is being built. And, of course, the the people with the greatest expertise, and like you say, peaches or hostas or passion flora or whatever, are going to spend the most of their time beefing up, commenting on, uh, et cetera, on the stuff they know the most about. And the people with the biggest questions are going to ask their questions there. So the most common questions and the best advice get met together. That's what I love about your site. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You, you've got it exactly right. Uh, a good example is daylilies. Um, 
the Daylily community has really rallied around this um, this site, and um, we have no doubt about it, the most complete database of daylilies um, anywhere in the world, uh, even even above uh, the societies that cover daylilies specifically. And we've programmed special tools for the, um, the breeders of daylilies so that they can they can look at a, at a variety of daylily and then they can um, click on how many children plants there are and they can see which other varieties came from the breeding of this certain variety. Uh, which is a really, really powerful tool for the breeders. So the breeders have kind of gravitated towards this site, and they're discussing with each other all of their breeding efforts. And so, you know, anybody who's just a daily enthusiast can come and actually get access to all of these breeders and ask them questions and, you know, get the benefit of their knowledge. There was this big, long thread about, you know, tetraploid versus diploid uh, genetics and dailies and the benefits of one over the other. And it's just so interesting to read this stuff. And, of course, if a person doesn't care about that, there's some, they can go into whatever area they do care about. So some people are going, that's really cool. And some people are going, I, I, I don't care about tetraloid versus diploid. You know, right? So right. that's what I, it, it's very easy to find and navigate through from the most technical things to, I just want to know if this daggone thing will grow where I live. And what does it look like so I know if i Because a lot of this stuff we end up with, like I'm on your page right now for Malabar Spinach. And I would tell you that if you live near somebody that's grown Malabar spinach and you're somewhere in the south, I'd say up to about zone seven, the seeds easily overwinter, and you'll probably end up with it growing on your property sooner or later. It's like kudzu light or something. It's a great plant. Um, so a lot of this stuff may just show up on people's uh, property, and then they're wondering, well, what is this? Yeah, yeah, exactly. We've got this one area called the plant ID area, and you can go in there and post a picture of whatever you have. And uh, within minutes, you'll always have somebody that comes and tells you exactly what it is and gives you a link to it in the database. And uh, sometimes they'll even propose that your image be imported directly into that plant in the database, um, which is always kind of fun uh, to have that happen. Um, but, uh, you know, I was in the tomato area, and I was asking about, you know, where do you guys buy your tomato seeds because I'm considering other sources this year. And uh, because the prices have gone up. I'm not sure. Yeah. You know, and, uh, yeah, we've had a long discussion about, you know, all the, you know, different varieties of tomatoes that are good for the south and you know who are the good sources to get them from and you know this this conversation occurred in plain view and anybody else who comes along is going to you know benefit from that and yeah you know, we all learned about some new sources and uh, you know we've got some see, we've got a lot of gardeners that are really experienced they've been doing this for just decades and decades and they're they're great people and you know they were they were members of Dave's garden for 10 years and they just kind of followed me along to all things plants so we we've got some great people that that you know provide good information to each other um, another fun thing that we have on the site, which really doesn't mean a whole lot, but it's just fun, is um, we have this this currency, and we call it acorns, and it's kind of like uh, kind of like dollars, really. And so, whenever you make a contribution to the database, whether you're proposing uh, a fix to the data, or if you're adding an image, or posting a comment, or whatever, um, you're awarded acorns based on your contributions, and then you can use those acorns to um, to like buy little badges that appear next to your profile, which is it's just it's a fun game. But um, actually, sometimes we hold raffles where you can buy a raffle ticket with your acorns, and then the winner gets like a $100 gift certificate. Um, or uh, we sell T-shirts and coffee mugs and stuff like that. You can buy those with acorns. So this way, people who contribute to the site also can get some benefit from each other. You've kind of taken a segue away from guarding for a second. That's very interesting to me. It makes me think of, on a larger scale, something like Bitcoin. Um, on a different social networking platform, there's a thing called Empire Avenue, which is like a virtual stock market, and they have Eves. 
I'm starting to see more and more versions of virtual currency show up, and some actually you can buy stuff, maybe like a raffle ticket with it. Some you can get little badges or whatever, but I'm actually starting to see people create ways that users can trade value for value online, and I think that's really cool. And was there anything that like drove that, like something else gave you that idea, or did it naturally evolve on your site? It really was kind of a natural evolution. This was one of the things that I was kind of looking at on Dave's Garden a long time ago was, you know, how, how can I really um, indicate to the public what, you know, people have, you know, like top contributors? Uh, you know, how can I reward them? How can I, uh, you know, to really I just wanted to be able to showcase to the public the, the, um, the, contribu- the contributions that some of these big contributors have made. Uh, and so the acorns just kind of came up out of that. Um, I know about Bitcoin, which I think is a really fascinating idea, um, and, and I know about the other kinds of digital currencies. So I, I guess those the, the ideas have been planted in my head. Uh, so the acorn just kind of came out. We just started playing with it, actually. I kind of felt like I was the Federal Reserve creating money out of thin air when I first created the acorn system <laughs> because, you know, it's just a number in a database is all it is. Sure. And, and I can create or destroy acorns as I wish. And um but I mean, that's one of the things about selling um, shirts and uh, and selling raffle tickets for acorns is it, is it removes acorns from circulation. Uh, so it, it gives a reward to the people who make contribution, contributions, um, and at the same time, it reduces the number of acorns that are out there. Because once somebody buys something with an acorn, you know, it doesn't re-enter circulation; it just gets destroyed. Basically, uh, uh, that's the way I do it. Yeah, so the right value now, has to be earned, and then the value is exchanged, and then more value has to be created before more currency is created. Yeah, exactly. That's an innovative thing. I'm going to have to look. I'm not going to go deep with that to you today because I'm going to have to think about that one. But that is a that is an interesting idea, definitely. Yeah, uh, and I think I think it'd be great if people would trade with each other and like trade seeds and plants instead of you know like I'm going to give you this plant and you give me that plant. It'd be nice if I could say I'm going to give you 100 acorns for that plant, and now you've got 100 acorns, and then you can buy a plant from somebody else using those 100 acorns. So that way you can have like a three way trade. It's not like I have to trade with Jack. You know, I can trade with you, you can trade with Bob, and Bob trades with somebody else. Gee, that almost sounds like currency facilitates trade. Yeah, exactly. Basic economic law that's ignored by our uh, our financial institutions. One thing I really like about you, though, dude, is you're like this great coder with all these mad skills and all, uh, but you're not just like somebody with a passing interest in gardening, so you coded something on gardening. This is like you live this stuff. Like you're a master gardener. In fact, you're like the uh, the president of your local chapter or something like that. You, you tell folks a little bit about because I hear the term all the time, master gardener, and you know it, it, I think it's cool and all, but at times I think it can be taken the wrong way. Like you're a gardener, you're a master gardener. What's that program really all about? Why should people consider getting involved with it? Okay, well, um, yeah, Master Gardener uh, program, it's probably different from state to state. Um, it's based on the extension service. Uh, so here in Texas, it's the AgriLife Extension uh, Service. And so the Master Gardener program is a volunteer program that's sort of there to kind of actually assist the extension office. And so um, the extension office has an agent, and uh, she'll, you know, sort of coordinate the Master Gardener program. Um, Basically, it's really a service organization, and um, what the Master Gardeners do is you know, they hold events, they educate the public about gardening, and um, to me, it's just it's the ultimate it's the ultimate way of connecting with other I would call you know hardcore gardeners in your local area. 
And uh, being a part of the Master Gardeners here has been just great for me because I'm connected to all of the master, all of the gardeners in our whole area. Uh, not just the members of the Master Gardeners, but like the local garden club. Um, you know, there's a lot of overlap between the. Uh, you just think about the networking. You know, of this, a lot of my Master Gardener friends are also members of the garden club and things like that. So. Uh, it, some people do get put off by the name Master Gardener. I think it's probably an unfortunate choice of uh, of, of word when they named that program that. But um, basically, it's just somebody who is a volunteer gardener and uh, and who works alongside the Extension Office. I, I'd recommend it for anybody. I mean, absolutely anybody. If you've got the time to volunteer, uh, definitely look into it. Just so the person on the outside looking at that master gardener seems like there's a test and maybe an apprentice level or, you know, like somebody decides when you're a master gardener other than yourself or, you know, that, yeah. that, that's the kind of connotation people get out of it. Yeah, I, I, I you know, I'm probably unique in this area um, because I didn't go through that process. I'm, I'm, I'm actually technically an honorary master gardener. Um, <laughs> Yeah, what they did was when I moved to my county, I was invited to come speak to them because of, you know, my history of gardening and with Ace Garden and things. And um, when I spoke and they asked me if I would like to you know, consider joining, I told them I just don't have time to take the test and do the class and stuff. So what you do is you – and they, so they made an exception for me. Apparently the rules don't apply to me. But, um, you know, uh, the, the, there's a class that runs about two months. And, um, you know, it's like two days a week for a couple months, but of course this would depend on the, it's different from every county in every state, but uh, you, you go attend the class and you learn about all kinds of stuff, and then at the end of it you take a test, and um, if you pass the test, then you become a, uh, a uh, sort of like an intern master gardener, and then you put in volunteer hours, and you, you track how many hours you volunteer in the program, and then once you volunteer a certain number of hours, uh, and that, that number is different depending on what county you're in, then they certify you as a master gardener. And then all you got to do is just uh, make sure you, you know, volunteer every year a certain number of hours to, to retain your Master Gardener uh, status. It would seem to me that as valuable as the education you would get would be the, the networking opportunities and the meeting of people and the development of community and the resources obtained from that are probably more valuable than the, the let's call the textbook side of the education. Oh, no doubt, no doubt. Now, of course, I'm speaking as somebody who never went to that textbook thing, although I have taught some, <laughs> yeah. I've taught some of the classes, but I've never actually been through the class. Uh, one day maybe I will just so I can make myself legitimate. Um, but, yeah, I mean, the networking part, that, that's the reason to do it, really, to me. Um, it's the networking, and it's also the ability to serve your local community, which I'm really big into. Um, but, I mean, like, for example, um, it was through the Master Gardener program that, you know, most of my speaking engagements come from. And uh, I, I was invited to speak to the um, the Houston Master Gardeners, um, the, uh, the Bear Creek uh, one. There's actually two Master Gardener programs in Houston. And, yeah, I got to go down there and speak to a room of, like, I don't know, three or 400 people. It was, it was amazing how many people were there. And, actually, I spoke about permaculture. And uh, just it was great. I got to meet so many wonderful gardeners down there and, uh, you know, just expanded my network just dramatically by all the good people I met down there. And, of course, free plants, too. Yeah, awesome. every Master Gardener. Every Master Gardener Association, we have uh, these plant sales um, twice a year in our local county, and um, you know, we propagate all of our own plants that we sell, and that's our big fundraiser. And uh, yeah, through the process of that, of course, we're sharing with each other all of the plants that we're propagating and stuff. So it's just amazing how many plants I've you know I've accumulated just through my association there. 
Yeah, and you mentioned an interesting thing there because you're talking about master gardening. You talk about teaching permaculture, and I mean, I, to be honest, it's one of the things that put me off a little bit. I've been kicking around getting in touch with the folks here in Garland County, uh, Arkansas, but like I went down to the um, to the uh, farmers market, and they have this typical urban landscape, commercial landscape type look and feel to all these little boxed off bushes and stuff like that around the farmer's market and a great big plaque where it says, you know, uh, this landscape established and, and cared for by the Garland County, you know, master gardeners. And I look at that and go, well, that's not what I want to do. But maybe I'm being unfair because it's government property. It's going to, that's what the, the client's going to want, I guess you would look at. Well, I mean, that's, that, that, that goes back to the, the differences from county to county. Um, yeah, some some counties are really big into uh, what you call conventional agriculture. Uh, you know, which would include lots of you know spraying and you know using every every pesticide they could find and using every kind of you know synthetic fertilizer and you know all that kind of stuff. Yeah, our county is different. Our county has um, you know a lot of people who are into permaculture. I think a lot of that's because of me, of course. I've come in and I've I've educated the local people about this. And even before I got here, there were already a lot of you know what you might call organic type growers in our county that were part of the master gardener program. So they're like, you know, we have we have a demonstration garden at the uh, local arboretum, which is actually on the Texas uh, state um, the the forestry service, uh, te- Texas Forest Service's property. So I guess you would call it government land in a sense, um, but it's very permaculture friendly. Uh, it's mostly organic. And, uh, you know, very much not like what you're describing, like what you said. Yeah. And I'm not uh, saying that's all they do. I'm just saying that was the one place I saw kind of their fingerprint, and I looked at it and just went, that looks like any apartment complex or front side of any type of office park where they put a little bit of green stuff and some mulch down. Uh, but I'm not putting them down or anything. In fact, I just looked them up while you were talking, and they meet every week at the library right downtown, so I may go check these guys out uh, you- and see what they're doing. You could probably contribute by, you know, bringing, you know, a lot of permaculture into that. And, sure. you know, they, they would probably welcome that. And something else to think about, though, and, and this is sort of a downside is, um, you know, the extension agency is um, usually part of the local university system. you got to think about where they get their money. And, you know, yeah. somebody's going somebody to get mad at me for saying this, but a lot of the extension offices are not really into organic growing. I hate the word organic, but I have to use it because that's what everybody uses. Um, but, you know, they're not, they're not into permaculture. They're not into, you know, growing, you know, natural and organic. Um, so I, I think that you see a lot of that just kind of flow all the way down, you know, into the Master Gardener program. Yeah. But Brave it's stuff. <laughs> yeah. But in our county, our Master Gardeners are, you know, we're, although we are part of the extension service, we're pretty autonomous in the way we run things. And, cool. um yeah, so we kind of set the tone for what we do and and how we do it. Awesome. And awesome. and our and our agent is really cool with all of that stuff. She's she's uh you know really easy to work with and she doesn't she doesn't push the in fact she's really big into the earth kind um roses and things like that and growing organically. I I think that that's unusual in the extension office. I, but yeah, I could be wrong. I just haven't met too many people that are like her. Yeah, I agree with you. I think more and more are becoming open to it, though, because in the end, industry serves the public's want. And I think that 
sites like yours, movements like the permaculture movement, movements like the urban gardening movement, all of these things, the local food movement, are turning people on to the fact that there's a lot of things done that aren't good for the planet. And, you know, people are worried about exhaled air, but they're not worried about dumping uh, glyphosate onto the food we eat. And yeah. people are becoming aware of that, and they're starting to ask for naturally grown. And like, I'm not a big fan of the term organic myself. I anything the government owns, I'm generally not a huge fan of. But right. you know, naturally grown things. It's not natural to eat glyphosate. It just isn't. Uh, right. It really isn't. And right. uh, I think more and more people are demanding that. Um, kind of segueing a little bit though, I mentioned in, in the introduction. Um, you live this life. I mean, you've got 90 acres there in Texas. You've got kind of your own farm operation going on, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's wonderful. It's the way to live. I love it. We're in, we're in East Texas here. We've got, and, and that's one of the big reasons why we are where we are is because this was the area where we were able to find a nice big piece of property. East Texas gets more rainfall than, you know, Central or West Texas. Um, there's its own challenges here, but but East Texas is more like what you would expect to see from like um, yeah Louisiana or Mississippi or Alabama. It's 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 more like the South rather than the West. Correct. Um, yeah, and I was brought up in Richardson, which is a Dallas suburb. So, and I lived in McKinney for a time. So I I, I know there's even a difference just between Dallas and here. And absolutely, like, absolutely. Yeah. Every once in a while, I kick around the idea of long-term eventually moving back to Texas from Arkansas. Um, and if I did, I think that region you're in would be where I would settle. It's much more fertile. It's got much more rainfall. And uh, there's some reasonably affordable land in that area. And there's certain things that I do miss about Texas from a, uh, a business freedom standpoint, I would say. Yeah, yeah, Texas is great, and you know the business freedom. A lot of the freedoms are the reasons why we're in Texas, and um, and East Texas specifically. Like, you know, like you're like you're saying, uh, generally good soil um, and and availability of land. You know, there, you can still buy land for two thousand dollars an acre here in East Texas. Um, now that's if you're willing to buy a one hundred acre lot. Sure. Uh, but you know, yeah. And the thing is, you know, a lot of land that a lot of people are going to ignore is land that you want. Like um, half of our property is in a floodplain. Sure. And you know, by a floodplain, I mean it floods. Uh, when we get a five-incher of rain, our whole bottom land is completely covered in water. It's really exciting to watch. Um, but that's just, that's the way our land is. But, you know, most of the time it's not underwater, and when it does, the water comes through and it's gone within a few hours. So, you know, there's so much that we can do down there, and that bottom land is rich, rich soil. Um, all of the organic matter that flows out of your neighbor's yards uh, just all comes and accumulates in your bottom land. So it's just free Absolutely. organic matter. Yeah, I just love it. I feel like I'm a. I feel like I'm a thief. Every time it rains, I'm just just rubbing my hands together with excitement as I watch these leaves and other trash <laughs> comes out. It's just free fertilizer for me. Uh, yeah. I just love it. Um, the, the fastest building soil in the world. Uh, I guess unless we would rule out the mangrove swamps because they're probably the quickest, but other than that would be lake uh, floors. Uh, lake oh, yeah. floors are where we grow organic matter and soil faster than any place else in the world. When you have bottom land that floods, what you're talking about is land that temporarily becomes a lake and builds soil like a lake, but then becomes available any time other than when there's a deluge, uh, basically turning it into a shallow lake. Uh, I imagine there's a lot you can do with that land, too, that can maybe ha handle uh, the occasional flooding. 
we, we haven't even started to scratch the surface. We've been here for two and a half years on this land. We've just started to scratch the surface with the potential here. And that was another reason why I wanted 90 acres. Is I didn't want to run out of room for my ideas. Sure. Because uh, you know, I love innovation. I love learning about new concepts and new ideas. And I love putting them into practice. And so, you know, starting from the house and moving out, uh, you know, we're, we're about 300 feet in every direction that we've already kind of tamed. And then beyond that, it's still kind of the zone five thing. Um, for the most part, uh, but you know, sometimes we'll go down there and we'll we'll uh, rob and pillage the uh, the bottomland to bring up those good materials and bring it back up to the top and uh, and use it in our gardens up here. Um, a couple weeks ago, I hooked up my hay rake to the back of my tractor and we went down through the bottom and I raked up uh, just leaves into these long windrows and then the children and I uh, filled up the bed of the truck and just brought it up several times. We did that uh, with leaves and other you know just. You know, forest floor type stuff. Sure. And uh, yeah, if I don't do that too much, you know, I don't want to. I don't want to. You know, harm my. You can't my trees make it faster than it accumulates. But yeah. since accumulating from off property is accumulating faster than it, it's yeah. not just a vertical build. It's a vertical build, but it's it's accumulating from a horizontal plane. So you're yeah. you're getting more accumulation than you would, let's say, if it was just flat land that wasn't a bottom. Right. Exactly. So we do we do a lot of that you know you mentioned that we you know are growing a or living mostly a self self sufficient or self reliant lifestyle and this is true um, there's you know we've got chickens and we've got uh, cattle and we keep we keep a dairy cow and man, if you mentioned you you heard the Jerry Acres podcast and and I was telling him I think that it's it's amazing what keeping a dairy animal can do to your uh, to to your grocery budget. Uh, it, it, you just you wouldn't think that just getting milk would have such a big impact, but it does. Um, you know, just from milk, from butter. Uh, when you, you know, take the cream, you can make the butter out of that. And cheese. There's so many things you could do. And then all of the uh, the leftovers that you don't eat, just let it sit on the counter until it turns solid, and that's called clabber. Okay. And uh, chickens love clabber. And you I mean you you take a gallon of clabber and dump it in their pail, and they just attack it. I mean you. We keep, you know, you can you can give feed to your chickens and put clabber right next to that feed. They're going to go for the for the clabber and they're going to just completely ignore the bought feed. Because um, all they, creatures know that fat and protein is where it's at when it comes to nutrition. Yeah, and so yeah. they're taking our ex- they're taking our extra milk that we don't drink and they're converting it back into eggs and uh, and chicken meat for us. Now, and, just so uh, I understand this, when you talk about just leaving it there till it's solid, you're talking about milk itself, not just the cream side of things. Right. Or yeah. Just yeah, milk itself. We we'll skim the cream off of the top of our milk, and then we'll drink the uh, you know what's what's left. I mean, like it's not like we're using a milk separator, a cream separator. We just let the milk uh, sit in the fridge for a day or two, and then the cream all rises up to sure. the top. Yeah, and then you use a spoon and just scrape that top off. And then shake it up what's left, and then just drink it with you know meals and whatever. Uh, and so that's what we that's what we drink. And then you just I mean when you're getting like two and a half to three gallons a day from your cow, you know. Now I've got you've got to be feeding some of it back. There's just no, I mean I, I I don't use a gallon a week in, right. in milk form, but we eat a lot of cheese. We I cook with butter. I mean it, it seems to make sense. Yeah. Yeah, and there's you know you can get a lot of butter um, actually. We we make it in I think uh, three pound batches at a time, which is a lot. That uh, is a lot. And yeah, and uh, you can actually render the butter just like you would render fat. Um, like when you you know when you kill a hog and you take all the fat off and then you you, you ever rendered fat into lard? 
Oh, absolutely. Um, but I've, I've never rendered butter. I've, I've basically, the, the butter I've made is you get some cream, and I've never made it on a large scale. So if I can get a hold of some cream from a friend or something that has a cow, it, this is a long way to do it, but it works. You take a great big mason jar, and you fill it about uh, three-quarters of the way with cream, and you start shaking it. And it'll yeah. turn to whipped cream, and you keep shaking it, and it'll go back to like uh, like a whey. And then all of a sudden, you'll be shaking it, and it seems like it's going to take forever, and all of a sudden, thump. And there's yeah. just a giant lump of butter in there. It's great yeah. butter when you do it that way. But how do yeah. you render it? Yeah, okay. Well, so you do what you just described. Um, or you could use like a Dixie paddle type uh, churner. Uh, there's several different kinds of churning things. Your jar works. But if you're going to do this ever more than once, you know, get yourself a nice churn. Um, as soon as the butter comes, uh, go ahead and take it out. You know, rinse it. Uh, wash it really well if you can. Um, but actually, uh, when you render it, you don't have to be as careful to get all of the little water and squeeze out the whey and stuff. Um, put it in a pot, put it over the fire, really, really low fire, and um, or if you're using electric stove, just put it on real, like a simmer type of thing. And it'll feel like it takes forever, and you got to kind of watch it pretty carefully. But the butter melts, and you know what melted butter looks like. And uh, at, at once it finally gets to that full melted state, just leave it and just you know keep keep stirring it, but let it keep on warming. And eventually, the milk solids are actually going to separate from the uh, from the butter, and they're going to float up to the top, and they look like little tiny white pebbles. Yeah. And so you just get your net out and scrape that stuff off the top, and you know keep going, and eventually, all of a sudden, it is going to become crystal clear. It's going to okay. look almost almost like water. Now I know what you're talking about. You're talking about making ghee, basically. Is, is that is that's, that's, that's called it. It's okay, I just never heard it called rendering it. Yeah, yeah, that's ghee. Yeah, we make ghee with our butter, and um, it, I think it does affect the taste. It doesn't make it. It, it makes it taste a lot less buttery. Um, but uh, but man, that stuff has like an indefinite shelf life. Yeah, um, and know, you can cook, cook at higher temperatures without scorching. Yeah. That's that's part of what I like about it. Yeah, yeah, it's got a much higher smoke point. Um, you could make French fries with ghee. And uh, never done it. This seems kind of wasteful, but you could. Um, but yeah, we we pour them into. You, you can from Amazon or places like that. You can buy these silicone muffin pans. Yeah. And those those are perfect for this. So you can just pour that ghee right into those muffin pans and put it in the freezer, and it'll solidify pretty quick. And then you can take them out and put them in Ziploc bags and throw it back in the freezer. And then they're like little hockey pucks of ghee. And whenever you need some ghee, just open it up and pull it out. And um, I think they were, I think we measured it out that if you do that to the brim, they're like a fourth of a pound each or something. I can't remember exactly, um, but it's convenient for cooking to just grab it and take it. And uh, yeah, ghee is what they used to uh, pack, you know, like fish and stuff in. They would put barrels um, back before refrigeration. They would put ghee in, and then they would layer the fish in, and then cover the fish with ghee again. And then it, apparently it would store forever like that with with no refrigeration. And hence the old cliche shooting fish in a barrel. I don't think people get what they meant. The, the whole barrel was full of fish from top to bottom and layered with ghee. And if you couldn't hit a fish in there, you were you you had no bullets, right? <laughs> or you missed exactly. the barrel, I guess. Um, right. Cool stuff. But I mean, okay. So you got these, this ninety acre farm, and you've only got a, some portion of it kind of tamed, as you put. What are some of the other things you're doing there? Are you growing stuff for market, or is it just for self sufficiency? I mean. What is kind of your daily operation all about? Well, it's my, my first priority is to you know to to feed our family, and then uh, you know after that, if we have excess, uh, you know, I want it to go out to the community in one way or another. Um, there is a local food kitchen here called Hope, and you know a lot of the master gardeners uh, you know donate produce to that. But we did try to do a farmers market the last couple of years, 
um, here in town. We live in a town called Jacksonville, uh, Jacksonville, Texas, which is um, south of the, te- the city of Tyler. Um, most people know where Tyler is, so just go 20 miles south of Tyler, and that's where we are. And it's such a small area that we just we had a hard time establishing a farmer's market. Um, Tyler is good. There's there's several farmer's markets in Tyler, but we've never sold up there, and we've thought about doing it. Um, I would rather... Yeah, I just I don't want to drive 20 miles to sell my produce. It, it almost kind of just defeats the purpose of community and you know and doing the whole local thing. To, to me, 20 miles that's not local. Local is five miles. Um, so you know, in a town of 14,000 people, we we just haven't been able to to build up a good market yet. Um, you probably have a lot of that population growing their own food too, and I think that's one of the big holes that people don't realize that there is when they move to a small community and they're going to do the four or five acre hobby farm thing and sell locally, it's hard to sell a tomato when every backyard has a tomato growing, it, especially during tomato season. Yeah, yeah, no doubt. Probably half the people that live here have their own garden in the background. It's, it's common. It's, you know, it seems like everybody has a garden in their backyard. And tomatoes are, you know, a lot of people don't know this, Jacksonville, uh, Texas, used to be the tomato capital of the world. Uh, most tomatoes that were eaten were grown here in Jacksonville. Oh, wow. Uh, yeah, so there's a, there's a long history of of uh, growing tomatoes here and onions too. Um, so there's, there's a lot of people that garden here, uh, which is great. It's wonderful, actually. Have you yeah. guys had any problem with your tomato crops with blight? Um, about three four years ago, a huge shipment of blighted tomatoes made its way into the Dallas Fort Worth metroplex, and for years it's been difficult to grow tomatoes without getting blight. Uh, there, just we haven't had real cold winters, and that's one of the things that helps kill the spores in the ground. And um, it's it, it got to the point where my last year there, I just grew tomatillos and and uh, uh, we call them ground cherries. I didn't even try to grow tomatoes in my last year because it would just seem futile. Um, have you guys had that problem out there? Or is that pretty much limited to the metroplex, from what you know? Well, it sounds like the uh, like the latter there because we haven't dealt with that here. But I'll tell you what we deal with is um, blossom end rot. Yeah. Um, our soil is acidic here in East Texas. That's pretty. It's just that's the way it is through all of East Texas. Is our, our soil is very acidic. Uh, actually, much of the South is that way. Uh, and this is why I'm so big on things like aquaculture and stuff like that. Um, but you know, like all the soil is sandy, and I don't know if you know this, but you probably do. Sand doesn't hold nutrients at all. Correct. They just they just flow right through. Yeah. Uh, whereas clay will hold the nutrients. There's there's a chemistry there. Um, uh, the positive or negatively charged ions will hold on to the nutrients as the water flows through. Well, so if you have sandy soil, you, know, you could you can actually add compost, you can add manure, you can even add synthetic fertilizers to your soil. But as soon as the rain comes or as soon as you irrigate, boom, it's all gone, washed right into your ground and uh, unavailable to your plants. It's so frustrating. I could just scream sometimes. Uh, so we have all this sand. It's really, really hard. Even our watermelons uh, get blossom end rot if we don't really heavily amend the soil. Um, so, you know, that's that's our deal with tomatoes is blossom end rot. Um, if, if they don't get enough calcium, uh, you know, the, the, where, the, where the blossom part of the fruit is, it'll actually rot on the, uh, on the plant. What, what have you done to kind of co- compensate for that? I know you're pretty big with the mulching thing. Yeah, I mean, you know, definitely mulching. Sheet mulching, um, I, I'm sure you've read that book, Gaia's Garden. Uh, read parts of it. I never really got through it. Yeah, all right. Well, Toby Hemingway, it's not the kind of book that you would read from cover to cover, but there's a yeah. lot of great you know, parts that you can skim through it. Um, he, he's got these uh, sheet mulching recipes that I just, just love. In fact, it was his book that I, that I learned about Hoover culture several years ago from. Um, 
which is basically seat mulching is what aquaculture is. You're just adding logs and branches as part of the, you know, part of the layers. Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, you know, that's, that's pretty much what we do. And, if, you know, if I can find some clay anywhere, then that's where I want to garden. So, you know, we've got some areas that are just pure sand, and I just don't garden there. Yeah. And, uh, you know, we, we've got this one big spot that I would just love to have a garden, but it's just all sand. And, you know, I can grow onions there. Um, you know, I can usually pull out like, purple hole peas. They grow really well over there. Leeks um, would probably do phenomenal there. They love sand. Yeah, yeah, probably. Um, things like chard do okay over there. Um, so, you know, I, I can grow those kinds of things over that, in that way. Um, but I've got another side. The other side of my house over here is more of a hill, and there's a lot of red clay in there, and that soil is good. And, in fact, I was digging out there just a couple hours ago, and I pulled up an earthworm, if you could believe that, <laughs> and uh, just out of unamended soil. Um, so, you know, what we do is we build up using culture methods and sheet mulching, and then we plant into that. So I think that our, you know, the... You know, what our plants are getting, you know, they're given to, they're, they're, you know, we, we're giving them what they need. They're not getting it out of the ground. We're giving it to them through sheep mulching and agriculture and things like that. We harvest the manure from our cows, and then we, you know, we put that in a heap, and then a year later we use that heap on our agriculture beds. And, uh, yes, I've, I've got this one big spot here between the house and this new barn that we're building, and I, I actually made an A-frame and, um, you know, laid out, kind of like you did. I, I saw your video that you made about the, um, your part one, two, and three of your hugelkultur. Sure. Yeah, well, I'm doing something similar over here on on the west side of my house, where the, it slopes down, and it slopes away from the house, and so uh, I'm, I've got these swales that I that I uh, measured out and dug. They're like 50 feet long, mm-hmm. and uh, I've got five of them now going down the hill, and uh, we're we're making hugelkultur beds out of those. Just actually, it's it's amazing to look at your video because we're doing exactly the same thing. Sure. And, and I know it's going to go great because we've already been doing a lot of hugel culture, and you know where our biggest productivity comes is from our hugel beds. You know, and, uh, it, it amazes me how many people have quote concerns or are worried about hugel culture or things like that. Jason actually drives me a little bit nuts every time he mentions it. I have some concerns, and I, I, I look at that system of growing and go, "That's how the forest grows." I've got photography of trees that have fallen on my property naturally. And damn it if they don't hit the ground and slide, it's a fairly steep slope, and end up sitting on a contour line all by themselves. Yeah, yeah. And dang it if then when the leaves fall and the rains come in the fall, the leaves don't build up on top of it. And dang it if where they fell it didn't leave an opening. And dang it if within a year or two stuff's not growing right out of that pile. So to me, like, when people say, well, who invented it? You know, Sepp Holzer made it really well known. It's in Gay's Garden. Uh, nature invented it. It's a, I've seen plenty of stumps where the tree fell over. Stuff accumulates around the stump left in the ground, and a tree grows out of the stump because it's a, all it is is a water reservoir. And, you know, every, every time we get a hard rain and the water comes through our woods, you know, here comes a log floating down the water, and it hits a tree. <laughs> The other side of that log hits the other tree Correct. and for, forms a dam. And before you know it, you got leaves piled up for eight feet. You know. Yeah. And yeah, uh, yeah I mean, you, you you can walk through my woods and just find natural, you know, on contour lines of of organic material. I mean, yeah, just just looking at nature, observing the patterns, and you know, replicating them in our landscape, you know, gives us productive systems. Yeah, if you've seen my videos, and you know, like, the, the the one fairly substantial bed that I made right toward the house that I did mainly as, like, a flower and ornamentals bed to pass by the wife so I could 
do all the rest of the stuff without being molested. Uh, yeah, I uh, that particular one was when I really, I already had seen this these dams forming, but I kind of snapped to contour growth being a natural occurrence because I put the line in and it ended up following like four really beautiful big trees that when the guy built the house that, that I live in now, first built it, he cut down all the kind of scrub trees and everything and left the substantial hardwoods uh, as ornamentals basically and they were growing straight on this contour line. So when he selectively cut everything that was small and unwanted, the big, stocky, strong trees were already sitting on this contour line. For all I know, for all we know, you could speculate into the past that one of those dams had been formed there, and that's where those trees really took off, and then, of course, erosion took over from there and, and things leveled back out. But it just seems to me that this contour growth, organic swale, system is nature's own system for expanding forests yeah 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 that's really interesting and yeah definitely yeah it reminds me of something else that i've, I've never really heard other people talk about but um beavers uh oh sure you know when they when they dam up a creek uh you know that does the same exact thing and it slows the it slows the water down uh stops the erosion and you know with with the loss of beavers uh you know you go find a creek in east texas it's usually 10 feet below grade yeah, uh, you know why is that? Well, the, the water's moving so fast; it's carrying the material away. Sure, and we, actually, we actually, yeah, we had a beaver. Um, maybe not a beaver, but we had a dam building animal. I, I assume it was a beaver, but some some of the locals told me it might be something else. I can't remember what it's called. Muskrat? No, no, something else even. Uh, snipe, maybe. Uh, no, not Snipe. Not Snipe. No. That's the Boy Scout. That's the fictional character. I, I, I bet you the truth about Snipes. There are real Snipes. They're birds, but they're not the ones they take you hunting for with a bag and a flashlight. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, that takes me back. Yeah. Um, but yeah, this thing um, built a uh, dam out in my creek, and, I, and it is wonderful. And actually, um, the the, uh, the the dam is gone now, um, but the effects are still there, and that oh. it really improved that area of that creek. Um, we have a year-round creek that flows on the, on the border of one of our, on one of our borders, and uh, I was really glad to see that beaver there, and I hope he comes back again. Yeah, definitely. But, they're, they're making a comeback here. I know about five years ago, I was fishing in a stream that, that goes into Joel Pool Lake uh, off of Highway 360 when I was still living in Arlington. And I'm down at this little creek, and there's like nobody around, and I'm sitting there fishing. And all of a sudden, I hear this boosh, and I'm like, like you're talking about being downgrade from the highway, and there's an overpass up there, and it sounds like somebody's whipping either rocks or like bottles full of water down into the creek. So I look, yeah. and I'm like, who what the hell? And then like I hear another one, and then another one. So now I'm pissed, right? And now I'm, I'm looking for whoever the hell thinks this is funny, and I'm going up, and I'm looking up, and there's no one there. And finally, I caught him out of the corner of my eye. It was a beaver, and he was pissed that I was there. And what they'll do is they'll come up, and they'll slap the water with his tail. So here I am looking for a fight with some punk kid throwing you know, rocks at my head or something, and it's a beaver antagonizing me. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, yeah, I mean, yeah I, as much as I love beavers, I'd hate to have them near the house. Yeah. Uh, imagine going out there and finding your peach trees cut down. Uh, and Don't do it. Dam. Yeah, Don't I'll do it. About the only thing you can do is wrap your trees in, uh, like, uh, chicken wire or something like that. They don't like that stuff, but, uh. Yeah, or I suppose you could fence the orchard off. You could. They'll probably eat your fence posts and come in anyway. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. Well, we, we buy, um, these cattle panels, um, that are like, um, they're really thick gauge metal that are welded into, um, squares. Oh, cool. And, yeah, you can buy them at, like, 
tractor supply and places like that, they're about a dollar a foot. That's generally the price, about $16 for a 16-foot panel, uh, which is pretty expensive, but these things last for like 50 years. Yeah, they're uh, only expensive once. That's, that's exactly. Exactly. So what we do is we put T-posts up, and then we hang these things up, and um, we've, we've fenced off a huge area around the house. So basically, you know, deer can jump over it, and lots of animals can still get through, but it stops wild hogs. Yeah, uh, with you know, there's there's no way I'm able to suffer a wild hog to come up around our house. Um, it would just destroy everything. Um, but they are tasty else. though. I'm sorry. They are tasty though. <laughs> I've, I've never actually eaten a wild hog. Oh, they're great. Um, Big boars yeah. are not. Um, when you shoot one and you're 50 yards away, and it, when it falls over, you can smell it. That's probably not a good one. But the majority of them, I mean, it's it's just basically wild pork. It's it's really good eating stuff. I've I've uh, even seen maybe one or two really big sows that get a little bit gamey, but um, there's so many of them that are in the 100-pound, 7,500, 50-pound range running around down there that uh, if you have the opportunity to put pork in the freezer, man, take it. They're good eating. Oh, hey, I, I promise you I will. If I ever see a hog, the, the thing is we don't see them because they can't really get near our house. Sure. But uh, if I ever see a hog, I promise you I will shoot it. Well, do you, have, do you have the whole place fenced, or is, like, are your bottoms open, or...? Well, we have we have barbed wire against the um, on the creek side. Yeah. I got to deal with my I got to deal with my neighbor where I've got a fence on my side for the first half of the creek, and then the second half of the creek is on his side. Um, I got that it. Way our, yeah, um, but other than that, um, we're pretty much the uh, the good hog fencing all the way around the property. Oh, cool. um, yeah, I mean it was expensive as you you know you just can't imagine how much we paid, but um, it's only done once, and yeah. it keeps the ho- it keeps the hogs you know pretty, it pretty much discourages hogs from coming through. Uh, but it doesn't stop the others. It doesn't stop deer and things like that. Oh, and by the way, speaking of deer, I got to thank you for introducing me to Biltong. Um, okay. Man, I just I love Biltong, and my children just go crazy for it. And uh, we shot a deer this year, and we 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 just we made actually the whole thing into Biltong. And uh, you know, I keep a basket of Biltong on the countertop, and and actually I, I can't put it all out at once. Otherwise, they will literally eat it all. They will. Yeah, it, so I have to keep it. In, I keep it in the freezer, and then every now and then I replenish this basket that sits on the countertop. And then they they, they know that if it's in the basket, they're yeah they're allowed to eat it. So yeah, it's slightly more addictive than crack cocaine wrapped around heroin. I mean, it it really is. It's uh, yeah without the withdrawal of, or, or psychological side effects, you know. But uh, if it's around, you're going to eat it. And I can't think of something to do with deer meat that's a much better idea than turning it into biltong. Uh, Forever I shall be grateful to Peter uh, Hathaway Capstick, who I first read about it in one of his books. And uh, it's one of the easiest ways in the world to preserve meat. To me, it's easier than making jerky. It's a lot easier. No, no doubt. And, you know, with jerky, you have to use um, uh, saltpeter, at least, or, or, you know, some other kinds of chemicals. You don't have to do that with Biltong. Yeah. And that's, that's huge to me. All you really need is, is good vinegar and then coriander. And, of course, now we're growing coriander because I don't want to buy it. Sure. You use, so much, you use so much of this stuff whenever you... Uh, Whenever you make biltong, but um, well, so especially if you make a whole deer into it. Yeah, right. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, that's like you know, forty pounds there, um, and uh, and we make it out of beef as well. When we when we slaughter, we, we slaughter our own cows here for for okay. our freezer. We don't take them in, um, and so we we make a lot of biltong out of beef as well. And and I'll tell you something. A lot of people make biltong by cutting it with the grain. Yeah. Um, like you would do with jerky. Yeah. But uh, I cheat and I cut it against the grain. And uh, it makes the uh, biltong a lot easier to break apart. So you can actually hold it in your hand and just snap off a piece off at the end and pop it in your Oh, mouth. I see what you're saying, yeah. Yeah. So, you know, that, that's what we do. I have a permanent uh, 
uh, wire on, on our porch that's between two posts, and that's my biltong hanging area. And, uh, you know, just love it. I had some guys here that were working on building a, you know, working with me to build our barn, and uh, they just they couldn't believe how good this quote-unquote beef jerky was that yeah. I was giving them. Yeah, it, to me it really bears no real resemblance than beef jerky other than it's the only thing you can compare it to. It looks more like a mummified stick of meat. You know, yeah. and, and that's what just makes it so awesome. So you, you mentioned you slaughter your own beef. Are you guys do anything with, like, paddock rotation uh, with all that uh, fencing you've got there or what have you? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, definitely. Uh, as a matter of fact, um, this year we have not yet had to feed hay to our cows. That's uh, awesome. Yeah, and it's almost February 1st, which is, which is unbelievable to me. Um, yeah. That that we're not feeding hay, and so what what we're doing is we're growing all kinds of different species of grasses and um, and clovers and things like that. And yeah, there's a lot that we still have to do. It's like I think like I said that with everything, but it's always it's always the case. But we have several paddocks that we have fenced off, and um, we can move the cows from one paddock to the next. And uh, this way, you know, it's like with chickens. If, if you fence in this area and put the chickens in, they will just completely destroy it all the way down to the dirt. Uh, you know, and the cows will do the exact same thing if they're left in one area, um, or if they're left to roam the whole property. They just kind of keep, yeah, you know, they just eat the tips of the grass and then they move along. Um, so we've got these paddocks and we're growing, um, you know, well, we've grown wheat and we've grown oats and, uh, this year we're doing annual ryegrass. Uh, we're, I'm talking about winter crops here. Sure. And, um, you know, that stuff gets tall. It gets, you know, halfway to your knee. And then you let the cows go in, and you know they're just they're just thrilled because of all this great green grass, and so they get tanked up, and you can just see their rumens is twice as wide as they are, and uh, just really happy cows producing great milk, and uh, you know it's it's not a lot of work. You just have to put these fences in, and you just move them from place they to move place. Move on a schedule, right? I mean, uh, so how many head are you guys uh, managing there? Well, right now we've got three. Okay. And the re- the reason why we have we used to have twenty. Yeah, um, some of them but, got made uh, into biltong. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, we we've harvested I think three of them in the last two years. Um, but you know, like I said, I got a big family. We eat a lot, and um, and we love beef. So you know, it's it's kind of a staple for us here. But we we slaughtered a hog, and you know, we've killed chickens. We've raised meat birds and things like that too. Um, which it. Raising meat birds is not so self-sufficient because you, it's kind of hard to grow those yourself. You need to order them as chicks or, you know, go buy the meat heavy birds from your local, you know, feed store every spring. Um, but, you know, while that's available, that's a great thing to do is to just go buy you 50 little, you know, meat bird chicks and, you know, raise them. It only takes eight weeks and you raise them up to the slaughter size and then you slaughter them and you've got, you know, 50 birds. And if you eat one bird a week, that's a year's worth of chicken right there. Absolutely. Yes, and so we do that very thing. Um, but um, when when the big drought came uh, last year, we sold off most of our cows, um, which I, we kind of beat the rush on that. Uh, a lot of other people kind of waited until you know the the dead of summer came on, and they were then feeding hay. And it was ridiculous to me that you know everybody in in Texas is feeding hay in July. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, but you know a lot of these guys are trying to run you know a hundred head on a hundred acres. Well, and I mean, that was amazing to me because every time we hit I-30 going down there to visit, the number one thing I saw on the road coming in from Arkansas and Missouri and Mississippi and what have you was hay trucks. Yeah. In fact, the one trip I took, by the time I got to Dallas, I had about 50 pieces of hay straw wrapped around my antenna on my F-350 from it <laughs> flying. All, I mean, I had it hanging all over my truck. and. Yeah. 
when you cut down to a smaller herd of like three, were you able to get them by without hay feeding them during that drought, or did you have to feed them some hay? Or uh, yeah, we did not feed hay. Oh wow. All. Um, yeah. Now keep in mind, this is ninety acres here, and half sure. of its bottom. Yeah, half of its bottom land, and so. Um, but our bottom turned dry as a bone. Sure. And, uh, that creek that I was talking about, that's a year-round creek, uh, it wasn't a year-round creek last year. Wow. Um, it actually dried up, um, but there was still some water kind of flowing underground. You know, the sure. creeks have this gravel. You know, it's like there were these little spots where there was still some water there. Um, but uh, but there were, you know, there's rushes and there's there's grasses that grow out in the bottom land. And, um, and actually, um, your animals can browse on... Um, Sweet gum leaves and things like that as well. Absolutely. So if if you a lot of people that are, that are local here, um, they were actually using chainsaws and cutting down um, sweet gums out of their bottom land. And as soon as the sweet gum fell, the cows would all gather around and just strip it bare. And uh, you know it's kind of like a a way of cheating, and getting your getting your animals through the summertime. But we have not yet fed hay. It's been over a year since I fed any hay to my animals, and uh, and I'm thrilled for it. And you know, I'm crossing my fingers here because hay is, is it's ridiculously expensive. It is. Uh, used to be that you could buy a bale of pretty good quality hay for $35 for one of the big round bales. Uh, now you're not going to find that for under 100 which to me is just absolutely outrageous. Yeah, the only hay I've ever purchased in my life are the smaller bales that I've used for shooting uh, bows into, you know, uh, yeah. for, for arrow targets. So I don't really have a lot of experience in the hay world. Uh, but I know I've heard from a lot of people it's getting very, very expensive, and the and the high quality hay is getting extremely expensive. Well, this is why I don't keep a horse. You know, horses sure. horses need the higher quality hay, the, the, or whatever. Yeah, or you know, really good, you know, fertilized, you know, Bermuda coastal type you know, hay. Yeah. Um, but uh, you know, the cows. I mean, you could give them grass clippings out of your yard, and they'd be happy. Um, and you know, yeah. And I'll tell you something else about hay, though. Um, talking about hugel culture, you can use hay in a hugel culture system. You can you can put uh, like these square bales of of uh, old spent hay, yeah. and just put those out, cover them up just as if it was a log, and it works just as well as the logs do. And uh, we've got some areas where we had buried some old bales, and um, yeah, those areas are a lot richer than the other areas around it. So. Yeah, I think it comes down to anything that slows down water. Is going to create more life, it, and the organic matter. Exactly. So you've got the kind of the twofold there. But the way I always explain it is, if you were walking through the woods and you had no way to make a fire, you had no filtration whatsoever, and your choice was either drink or dehydrate and die, and you had to make that decision now. And in front of you was a still frog pond with scum growing on it, little frogs popping around in it, and just over to the right from it was a fast moving stream, and you had no choice: drink or die. Which one would you drink from? And everybody always goes the stream, and that's because there's less life in a stream, and there's yeah. more life in still water. So everything we do with permaculture, everything we do with hula culture, is about understanding water moving right angle to contour and making it take the longest, slowest path possible. And if it's absorbed and held in something, it's actually never held. That's the one thing I don't think people understand about water. There's no such thing as completely stationary water. It's always moving somewhere. We're just making it move extremely slow. Yeah, that's I give true. the plants a chance to get it, and then it's holding the nutrient while it's still. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's true. That's a good point that you've made there. Yeah, even even a pond is it's moving. Still, yeah, yeah. That's a really good point. 
It's either evaporating or slow. Even a well-lined pond, there's some seepage into the sidewall, and water moves. And I think that's like you were talking about your stream drying up. There was still a stream there. You can only see little pockets where it might seep through the rocks, but it was still flowing probably at a much slower speed underground. And when we do swaling, we're doing the same thing. We're, we're taking the water. We're stopping it for a time. We're leveling it out. We're putting it into the landscape, and now it's flowing down and through the land instead of over and across. It, yeah. it, you've had really great results with your hugu culture. As we kind of wrap here up at the end of an hour, can you tell folks some of the, the stuff you've been doing with it and how it's worked out for you? Yeah, well, I'm, I made this, what, what I call the hugel bed. Uh, it's in a mandala shape, which is kind of like a circle, and then it has all these little peninsulas on the inside of the circle facing inward. And then in the very center, there's there's one raised bed in the very middle of this. So it's, it's just a big circle. I think it's, if you were to walk around it, it's a 100-foot walk around. It's about 30-some awesome. yeah, feet side to side. Um, and, uh, you know, actually, I had a lot of doubts as well. Um, I was a, I was a hugel skeptic for quite a while, um, and you know we put this bed together, and I documented the whole thing and took lots of pictures, and I have an article on all things plants about this um, that you, you should check out that article because there's a lot of really good pictures, and it's it's kind of like a, a hugel tutorial, and um, this bed didn't do great for us at first. But the longer it went on, um, the better it did. And, you know, a lot of people, they, they say that it locks up nitrogen, and that seems to be true. But by starting with rotten wood, starting with a lot of rotten wood already, you kind of bypass a lot of that. And, um, you know, we grew this one gourd plant. And we, we, we grew one gourd in the middle of this one area of the bed, and it just took over. And, I mean, just hundreds and hundreds of leaves on this one vine, and it produced, I don't know, maybe 50 gourds. And these little birdhouse gourds, and uh, you know, just looking at that, I would just say, you know, just just tell me that this thing is not already loaded with nitrogen and releasing it to the plants. Sure. Um, chickweed just loves to grow all over this. And of course, chickweed, you can eat that. Uh, that's basically free lettuce that grows all over your property. Yeah, I'm uh, stoked because the, the the we brought some trees with us from Texas up here that were in pots, and then um, this uh, this this winter when it gets cooler and the chickweed likes to come out. They're all full of chickweed. I'm like, cool transplants, you know. Yeah, 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 yeah. Everybody, everybody listening needs to go go look up chickweed and identify it. And you know, if you've got it, you should be thrilled because it's just it's free lettuce. And my children go out there and they graze on it and eat it right out of the garden. Um, and the chickweed just loves the hugel bed. Uh, it just it it grows up the sides and it just covers it. And of course, we have to pull it back a little bit. Um, but I mean, you know, chickweed is a nitrogen. Uh, it's a heavy nitrogen. All that green leaf. And, uh, yeah, so I mean, the hugel bed is doing great. And, you know, we, we grow onions in it, we grow spinach, we grow lettuce, we grow every herb you can think of, um, Swiss chard, uh, if I said spinach, we grew that big gourd that I was telling you about, carrots, parsley, um, we got a big oregano plant on it, um, yeah, my wife is kind of hassling me to build her a herb spiral, and, uh, I'm gonna build the herb spiral with the hugel culture type of, um, concept approach, a hybrid approach there where I'm going to, I'm going to build up the herb spiral, but then as I'm building in the material, I'm going to put in logs, uh, you know, real cut real small, of course, and, uh, you know, and put that inside the spiral. If you can kind of envision what I'm talking about here. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I've pretty much made the decision that if I'm going to create any type of organic matter buildup, any type of a bed for the rest of my life, that there's going to be some matter of wood or piles of mulch or piles of straw or something going down first because my results have been like yours, phenomenal. 
Um, yeah. We grew broccoli this year, and I would have more of it mm. if I didn't have a dog-shaped hole uh, in my beds. But we did, and I'm doing different beds so people can kind of pick and choose what they want because some people don't want the big pile because they're in suburbia. And everybody yeah. goes, what's the big pile? So I did six in the ground, four foot deep, dug with a track hoe, wood in the ground, and they look like boxed beds on terrace. And we just, I took the, the seed in like October and just stuck it in the ground. Mm. And we've got beautiful, beautiful broccoli plants. Um, and I don't seem to have any problem with cabbage flies. And I think it's because they're so well hydrated, um, they don't really like it when it's well hydrated. They want that cellulose. They don't want that mucilage-like uh, nature when a plant's well hydrated. And, I mean, we're just cutting, you know, cut broccoli and then the big head and then we're cu- cutting the secondaries and I'm probably going to do my third or fourth cutting today. Um, and those plants were given absolutely no attention. In fact, kind of testing the system out, that's what I did first. Is I've, I've done nothing for anything. Uh, no tender loving care at all. And, yeah. you know, I put tremendous amounts, to be fair, tremendous amounts of compost in there because I get it for free from our facility. Um, yeah. So there's plenty of nitrogen there. But I'm like you. I used wood that was already partially rotted. Yeah. And I've got a lot of questions as to why. And the answer is not because I thought that would help so much as there's rotted wood laying on the forest floor everywhere. And I don't have to kill trees or use valuable firewood. I can use wood that really doesn't have another purpose. Yeah, well, it's also a shortcut, too. It, it saves. It, it's, uh, it is a it's shortcut. Like- it's like traveling into the future and, you know, getting that hugel bed that you want now, you know, rather than waiting for a year for that stuff to start to rot. Because that's what you're waiting for. You're waiting for it to rot. Because until it starts to rot, it's not helping you. And so, you know, it's, it's a total shortcut to get you there. Yeah, and I think it's easier. I mean, cutting yeah. hardwood trees is a pain in the ass. Picking up wood that's already fallen over, whip it in a pickup truck, dragging it where you want it, and burying it is easy. Oh, yeah, yeah, no doubt about it. And I'll tell you, if you can find sweet gum, that's the best wood that I have found for agriculture. Really? Because that stuff breaks down so fast, it's just wonderful. And uh, uh, birch is another one. It's, it's such a lightweight wood. Um, you know, it, it's just, within a year, it's just sponged. I, I think there's a trade-off there, though, because the quicker that we break it down, the shorter the life cycle of the system, and the, well, the sooner it needs to be is, recharged. Well, this is true, but, you know, for me, I don't mind recharging. Sure. Uh, I, I kind of like recharging the beds. Yeah. Um, you know, some people will say, you know, make the sucroculture bed, and it'll just, and it'll provide for you for 10 years without you having to put any more inputs, and that's all fine and good. But for me, I don't mind, you know, constantly, uh, you know, recharging it. You know, as the thing rots and it starts to make these pockets in your bed, and you'll see this, um, well, you want to fill up those pockets and, you know, sure. just you know, cram new stuff down in there, throw compost in, throw a bunch of grass clippings on or leaves or whatever. So we're, we're constantly replenishing our beds. And, yeah, I guess at some point they'll reach some level of stability, but we're not there yet. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, I, I don't expect that we will because we keep on adding stuff. And, yeah, it, we're always adding. There's a, um, there's a factory locally here who they make baskets, and they make baskets out of sweet gum. And so all these extra, you know, tailings that they've got from their sweet gum processing they give away oh, and wow. uh yeah they'll even load it up for you into your 16 foot trailer if you pay them 10 bucks oh wow and I, I was yeah i pay them the 10 bucks and they load up my 16 foot trailer and uh you know that, that is just tons of, of organic matter and we we cover everything with that stuff 
And uh, it didn't last long, but, you know, that's organic matter that's building up our soil. Well, it, 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 you say it doesn't last long, but it actually doesn't last long in its existing form. Yeah, it breaks down right. into a secondary component. And exactly. what I've found is, okay, culture is all great and well, and like I said, I'll be doing it for the rest of my life, but the more organic matter I have in my soil and the more mulch I have in my soil and the more I play with land contours to slow water down, the less I have need of, let's say, a traditional culture bed. So in time, the whole system can kind of evolve to a secondary state. Right. You know, exactly. The forest work. The forest starts out with culture, but once the trees have a taproot that's 16 feet deep, you know, supporting the 32-foot oak tree, that tree is – if that tree dies a drought, right, then we got bigger problems than that, that yeah. one tree dying. And I – I think that's like is, is putting as much perennial into these systems as possible as well. Um, I don't know if you've ever seen Dirt the movie. Uh, I haven't. But they, they show you the difference between uh, planted uh, annual grass systems and perennial prairie grass systems. And they show these roots, and they look like good healthy roots from these annual grasses that are like 12 inches maybe uh, long. And then, you know, I don't know how the hell they got this out of the ground without ruining it, but they managed to do it, and they showed these perennial grasses that grew native in our prairies. And the freaking roots from the grass are like 11, 12 feet deep. Wow. And you look at that and you go, well, that's why we didn't have a dust storm until we plowed everything. Right, you know? right. And you realize that there's no way you can really replace that other than to put back what was there and... I mean, that's why I'm really heavy on kind of the meat production side of things. I love hearing what you're doing with your cattle um, because, to me, it's, the, it's, it's sustainable. If I grow perennial grasses and feed that to my cows, well, I can, you know, slaughter a cow, bring in a calf, and grow him up, and the land, as long as I keep my movement going on, doesn't care. I've also been doing a lot of research with high-density rotational paddock systems, and I've now had it explained to me in a way that makes perfect sense that, like, we, we tend to look at animals and, and assign human characteristics to them, anamorphize them, I guess is what it's called, and it's not yeah. a good idea because they don't think like us. So right. if you cram a hundred of us into an acre and we're shoulder to shoulder, we're not happy. Well, for a herbivore, that's a natural state. That's how they live in the wild. Yeah. So they stay in that dense population because if they don't, and if, if one of them wanders, a wilderness wanders out on the Serengeti 10 feet away from the edge... Chop man, lion chow, right? So that's their natural state. But because of that, they move constantly. And if you take barbed wire away and, and all this stuff, they may not come back to that one acre for 50 years or more. Hmm. So when we do a paddock system, that's exactly what we're emulating. High density, very intense, but then those cattle might not be back in a paddock shift system for 90 or 100 days to that yeah. spot. Well, there's plenty of recovery time, and they leave all that wonderful organic matter behind and nitrogen from urine when they move. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, there's a lot of science to that that I don't fully understand, but I, I sure am a believer in it. And Jules Salatin has written a lot of books on that subject uh, about, you know, about rotational grazing, and he's really big into that. And I think that that's where we kind of got our ideas from is reading his stuff. I think there's a lot of us that can say we've taken a lot of genius from Joel's work. He's, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. He's a luminary to the extreme. I'm trying to think there's a guy in Texas doing a lot of work with rotational pasture, and he has a, a book, I think it's called How to Not Grow Broke, Go Broke Ranching, and his name escapes me right now, but I'll look it up and include it in today's show notes along with your sites. Um, I'm sure I'll be able to find it if I do a search for it. And he's he, he was the, I heard him on Howard Garrett's show. I'm sure you know who Howard is being from Texas. Yeah. And uh, yeah. just phenomenally intelligent 
uh, process. And it took away my one concern about these high-density operations. like Because I, I look at the cattle when they're packed like that, and it kind of looks like, you know, a finishing feedlot, if you've been to West Texas where you can just, like, see a sea of cattle, and you go, that's not a way for a cow to live. But moving around in that environment, they're they're happy. That's their native state. Yeah, yeah, no doubt. Like a herd of buffalo, you know, Correct. 150 years ago. Yeah, yeah, no doubt. Yeah, and the other, the other good thing about keeping cattle is they convert a product that's completely unusable to us into yeah. product that is usable to us. Yeah. And, you know, they can go out there and they can find every bit of, of, of you know, stuff to eat out of, off of 90 acres and basically bring it home and, and serve it to you as delicious steak. <laughs> and, and I guarantee you the steaks from your own cattle uh, are far superior to anything you're going to get from Kroger or, or Albertsons or what have you. No doubt. But I, I will say this, though. Um, there's less fat in sure. uh, in ours, and uh, you know, a lot of the flavor is in the gra- is in the fat, and so I, I think that without force feeding them the grain, uh, you know, there are there are things that you can apparently give a cow to to cause it to just eat more than it even wants to eat. Yeah, and it gets so fat that the that the fat actually penetrates into the meat, and they call that marbling. Yeah, <laughs> but it's yeah. it's actually unnatural, and you know, the animal's not happy. Um, but you know, the marbling tastes good. But you know, you know, th- there's there's some sacrifices to be made in going to a grass-only animal, and I don't mind making it because it's a healthier animal. Yeah. And, uh, you know, there's, there's things that occur in the gut of a grain-fed animal um, with E. coli. And, like, basically, E. coli is non-existent in an animal that's only fed grass. Sure. And, uh, you know, so, yeah, I, I love raising our own beef. and I would never do it any other way. I love raising Long-term, we can look at ways that we can fatten cattle, let's say, at slaughter time naturally, though, because... If you think about the way that uh, hunting seasons, and I don't mean legalized ones, I mean the native hunting seasons that, that man kind of self-assigned over time, it was always the fall. Um, the young were old enough to do without parents if a parent was killed. Uh, the, the, it was cool enough to keep the meat stored through the winter. Uh, but there was also a better quality to the meat in the fall because that's when the nuts came into mast. That's yeah. when the fruits came into mast. And all of that natural vegetation, so your deer, your buffalo, your wildebeest, whatever, ate nothing but grass right up until fall. But then in fall when the mast yield came, they would gorge themselves on that, uh, yeah. but only for a time. Well, that's the right. perfect harvest time. So it seems to me that with things like chestnuts, and acorns and apples and things like that, with a large piece of property like you have, planting some canopy species, uh, and you take the yield from lower down for market or for personal use, and you let the higher yield fall off to your animals, that we could build a system that would emulate even that. I like it. I'm going I'm to think on that for a little while. You've given me an idea here. You know, I mean, it's uh, totally it, it just seems to me. I mean, because they do it in Spain with hogs with uh, with acorns, right? So oh, yeah. Oh, why yeah. can't we do it with cows? I mean, cows will eat the crap out of apples. I guarantee you that. Yeah. Um, I know they'll eat chestnuts. Um, in in Texas, they they like mesquite. Yeah. You know, in West Texas, yeah. anyway, and there's a lot of fat and protein in mesquite uh, pods. So it seems like yeah. if we do it right and we schedule our slaughter, we could make would never get that ridiculous level of like Kobe beef looking stuff, right? But that we get a little bit more fat, a little bit more flavor, a little bit more quality. Just yeah. Point. You know, this what you, well, this this conversation that we're having, this kind of conversation would not occur in a in, in a group of people that's uh, completely consumed by the conventional farming system with, you know, using petroleum uh, and petroleum-based products to, to churn out 
uh, you know, almost in a, you know, a conveyor belt style factory right. farming system. Uh, and that's just, what's one of the things that I just love about permaculture and, and, and natural growing and, and, and not relying on petroleum for our farming is, is it spurs these kinds of conversations. Yeah. And, uh, I just love that. And my mind starts to spin as I think about new ideas and new concepts and, uh, I, I think it requires thought instead of processing. Like, so you're a programmer, so you understand kind of a processing mentality, and there's a place for it, but maybe not a natural system. So when I look at anything in, in, in agriculture, farming, gardening, food production, I think to myself, well, what do I want? Okay, and then my next question is, does that occur in nature? Mm-hmm. And if, they, if it, the answer is absolutely not, then maybe I don't really need that. But if the answer is yes, well, how does nature do it? So, okay, fine. How does, now, I know how nature does it. Now, how can I emulate that and systematize it? And to me, that's what permaculture is, right? So, yeah, yeah. If, if, if you want a Kobe beef cow, you say to yourself, does that occur in nature? Nope. Maybe you don't need to be eating that then. Maybe we right. didn't evolve to eat that, but does a, you know, cause I've eaten pastured buffalo that you look at a, a ribeye cut off a buffalo and you, it, it looks like a really dark red piece of, of good quality beef with nice, fat and tallow in it, well, where'd that come from? Well, they ate a certain thing at a certain time. With buffalo, it's probably not masked, but maybe it's, and I don't know the answer to this, maybe it's the way grass changes into, because it always seemed to me that the the time for harvest is the fall, and that that's when any kind of protein is, is optimum for harvest, especially yeah. larger red meat animals and, 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 and pork. Yeah. Well, think about when things go to seed. Uh, sure. That's, that's the end of summertime, and uh, and it is natural for these herbivores to go and you know their diet kind of goes into seed uh, at the end of that season. There, yeah, that's so. very interesting. Now that you say that because you know, buffalo is not going to eat mast, right? But it's going to eat things like oat grass and rye grass and things like that. And when's it going to be yeah. forming its seed heads? Well, it's going to form its seed heads at the beginning of fall. Uh, so if I harvest mid fall, I've had a good month and a half, two months of this much higher fat. A higher protein feed that's natural. Um, that animal's going to be naturally putting on fat to make it through the winter. And gee, I, I I always say this, but it almost looks like nature knows what the hell she's doing. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. You know, this year because the drought was so severe, all of our um, white a- well, uh, white oaks um, produced just a huge abundance of acorns, kind of like in a in a last gasp effort to try to, you know, reproduce the next generation. Sure. And um you know how that goes. And so the deer have been eating you know, just engorging themselves on these acorns. Mm-hmm. And uh that deer I harvested this year, it was the fattest deer I'd ever seen in my life. Uh when I got in there I could not believe how much fat uh was in that deer. And you know I actually rendered the fat into deer to venison tallow. Oh wow and uh, yeah, I have half a pint of venison tallow. I don't know what I'm going to do with it, but I've got it. And I've never even, I've never gotten enough fat to harvest, uh, to, to, to tallow from a yeah. deer. So, and I, and I guarantee that came from the acorns. Yeah, that, definitely. That, and there's a difference. I remember on Good Heavy Masters, when I used to hunt in Pennsylvania, we would really hunt two distinctive different biozones as hunters up there. Farms, and we would hunt mountains. And when you hunted the farms, the deer were absolutely taking corn from the cornfields. That's why the farmers were, it wasn't, the, there was none of this deer lease crap back then. The farmers were like, oh yeah, shoot the deer, right? I mean, yeah. especially the Dutch farmers and all that were trying to grow more close to organically. Um, they, you know, shoot the deer. So, but with the deer you would shoot from the farm areas and the bottomlands around the farms, uh, you would, when you skin them, they had a lot of fat on them, for a deer anyway. But that fat, fat would have almost a yellowish tinge to it. And deer, mm-hmm. you know, deer fat is not, 
like beef fat. It's more of a jello-y, like, you know, surface fat. And, and the tallow that was on the meat, too, would have kind of a yellowy twinge to it. And then when you hunted the deer up in the mountains that were fattened on the acorns, it was a very white or very clear fat. Yeah. Uh, and it's very different chemically, I would think, just because if the color's not there, just because the corn's yellow. Uh, yeah, yeah. It's how the animal's processing the, 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 uh, the nutrient. Uh, it, yeah. One is very, very dense carbohydrate. One is much more dense in fat and protein. Uh, the, uh, the protein uh, yield from an acorn and the fat yield from an acorn is way higher than from a corn plant. Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, that deer that we killed, uh, that fat was pure white. Yeah. Yeah. That's pure acorn white. fat. And I bet that's good, qual- great quality deer meat, man. And you made biltong out of it. I'm so jealous. Dave, dude, I, I, we're, we're over time, which is fine because I... We don't really have time limitations here, but I do want to wrap up. But I think that we could probably get you back on in the future. I think you and I could talk about this stuff for hours. And uh, I always love talking to somebody that's actually doing it. And, again, I want to give a great plug for your website, allthingsplants.com. Folks, the database there, Dave's not lying when he tells you it's extremely valuable, extremely well built on collective intelligence. So, Dave, man, thanks for being here. Thanks. My pleasure. And uh, with that, folks, we are going to wrap up today. Uh, I do think I'm going to try to get Dave back on. If you guys have any questions for him, let me know. And uh, when we have him back on, I will uh, make sure that we ask him. Uh, Dave, once again, thanks for being here today. With that, this has been Jack Spirico today along with Dave Whittinger, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. Show you a better way